Rising, where we share stories about research, innovations, and key initiatives taking place at the University of Utah. I'm your host, Chris Nelson. My guest today is Dr. Keith Diaz-Moore, who is the Associate Provost for Institutional Design and Strategy. This is a new position at the U and a new role for Keith, who was the Dean of the College of Architecture and Planning for nearly 10 years. We're going to learn today what this new role entails and how it intersects with the university's plans for growth. Welcome to you, Rising Keith. Wonderful to be here, Chris. For our listeners who aren't familiar with your background, tell us a little bit about your, your academic field of study and just how you got to the University of Utah. Sure. I'm an architect by training. And so I, after my schooling, I worked in New York and Chicago for a number of years uh, doing things that architecture students dream of, you know, big buildings, things being published. But my specialty emerged from the fact that my grandmother developed Alzheimer's disease. And when I went back and visited her uh, in the early 90s, this was the phase where there were uh, lockdown wings in nursing homes. And as soon as I visited her, I knew we could do better. And so that became my area of passion. Uh, how do you design for someone that's cognitively impaired? And I think one of the things that I, I take out of that that really was useful is as an architect, it's about process. It's how, you know, how do you engage in this? And what we often find when we're dealing with somebody uh, with another, somebody that we can't quite fully understand, is we often take a look at their, their losses. And so dementia early on was focused on, you know, oh gosh, they get agitated. They, they, they wander a lot. And what really became important out of that as, as someone trying to make their lives better is how do you reframe that? And so uh, rather than saying, well, we need to minimize agitation, what if you say they're really energetic and how do we give them outlets for that energy? You know, the fact that they, uh, they wander, well, they're, they're explorers, they're curious, the, the short attention span, they're spontaneous. And so if you start thinking about designing for somebody that's spontaneous and explorer, right, and has energy, there are positive solutions that you can begin to come up with, right? And you restore their, their humanity. Uh, and that's at the heart of human-centered design. Interesting. Uh, talking about your journey to the, to the University of Utah. So I'm always intrigued with, you know, you're a successful faculty member and a scholar, and suddenly you get this administration bug and you want to be a dean. So sure. what was that like? So my initial uh, job in academia was at Washington State University, and I was uh, an assistant professor of architecture and landscape architecture, actually. And then I was able to go to the University of Kansas to be chair of their architecture program um, and then moved up to associate dean of graduate studies. And then I was really fortunate in 2014 that the University of Utah came calling and asked me to be the dean of the College of Architecture and Planning. And I guess what gave me the, the bug was, was really thinking about, as I was teaching students, it, it seemed as though our profession, and this is not terribly uncommon, but our profession was not advancing as quickly as the students clearly could see where it needed to go. So emergent issues were, were this notion of a social justice, sustainability, and we just weren't getting there as quickly uh, as we could. So I felt some imperative to begin to have conversations in whatever place would have me uh, about how do we further that. Um, and it was very gratifying to see that resonate here in Utah where our college you know, exploded. It went from about 300 students to over 800 this fall. Uh, so, you know, almost tripling over 10 years. So continuing on your, your pathway, you've gone from the, the professor to administrator and now a new role as 
uh, Associate Provost for, to make sure I get it right, uh, Design and Strategy. And so tell us about this new role. What, what are you going to be doing? And I think it's the inaugural role. So it kind of give us some context there. Yes. So um, this is this is a new position at the university. And it's actually a new position for in, in higher ed. Uh, we're really at the at the leading edge on this. And what the nature of the position is, is it's really asking the question, you know, we're really good at, at academic planning, thinking about how our people align with the programs that we want to offer, the research programs we want to engage in. But sometimes where we, where we slip is not recognizing that as supportive for that agenda is the physical setting in which we're operating. And I think to give kind of an insight uh, to our listeners, you know, if you just think about the movement that's happened in terms of, of public health, and thinking about the role that the environment plays, whether it's in terms of, uh, you know, air quality, access to parks, things of that sort. The fact that we've, we've had a recent uh, director of uh, the Center of Disease Control say your zip code is more impactful than your genetic code on your longevity. We know the physical environment in which we operate has a tremendous impact on health. Well, why would that not also be true for other dimensions of, uh, of quality of life, such as education? Interesting. Yeah. And, and you kind of touched on this, but maybe a deeper dive on, you know, we talk about human-centered design practices that promote social, economic, environmental thriving. Maybe some practical examples, kind of like you just touched on, and, you know, even your grandmother's experience a little bit. Absolutely. So uh, there's really kind of two components. Uh, I, I'm trying to simplify those phrases. So the human-centered design, what that's about is as, as a designer or as, when you're trying to respond to creating something for someone, and you're right, my grandmother's example highlights this, is one, you have to enter with a great sense of empathy. Uh, Try to understand them as best as you possibly can. But secondly, I think one of the aspects that we've talked about in our college is there has to be a sense of humility to that, that what we're bringing to the table isn't necessarily what to do, but how we're going to go about it and how we're collaboratively going to think about where we're moving forward. The great ideas rest out in the community. It's not just an individual person. And so what, what architects are really kind of the masters of is, is the process. What are the questions we need to ask? How do we move along? How do we bring people together uh, to come to that? So that's the human-centered design part of that. Then the other part of that uh, in terms of the social, economic, environmental um, thriving, well, that's really systems thinking, right? Uh, that what we often will do is we'll think about we have a particular need, we will build a building, but that building has cascading effects, right? It, it will open certain opportunities and it will constrain other future possibilities, uh, you know, downstream. And those are important considerations. And so what you need to think about is not just the place you're making at this time, but that that place operates within a context that's constantly changing in time. And so I think some of the things that, that this position are, is challenged to raise are issues of we're not just designing for 2023. Our academic buildings last for decades. And so we're designing as much for 2075 as we are for 2023. And so to th- begin to think about sustainability, adaptability, flexibility in our buildings w- is really quite critical. Yeah, so let's bring it back to your job. So um, you're a former dean. I- I've got to think that campus planning is like urban planning, but on on steroids. I-, I had a boss who described the colleges as nation states, you know. Right. <laughs> and so how do you, you know, deans who are very entrepreneurial, who want certain things, like how, what, what, what's your vision to, how do you get them to unify around a vision? Sure. Um, I, I think that's part of the, the heart of this role. So the way I've been trying to conceptualize it is that it's much more about being a concierge uh, or, or a navigator 
to what can be a very complex process. So the way projects move here at the university, there are multiple entry points. There are different financial schemes. Uh, to, to challenge a dean to try to figure that out um, when it's not in their, their expertise is, is really somewhat of a waste of energy. The idea would be they have great ideas. How can we begin to have uh, conversations with, with other deans, others around campus that might even make those ideas better, and then have someone that can just navigate this process, be, be, the, be the guide at the side in terms of how to move these projects forward and have such an impact on our students and our communities? So, you know, I grew up in Utah. I'm a, I'm a graduate of the University of Utah. And what I love about our campus is you've got President Circle and you've sure. got these beautiful, historic, iconic buildings. And then you go half a mile up and you've got our new business school and our new college of education. What, what, what's, the, what's the evolution? And I assume most campuses across the country because you have institutions that are 150, almost 200 years old. And so I guess my question is, are, are we in an era where this planning is getting better, or is, is that kind of the that, that eclectic approach kind of unique to higher ed and, and something we should embrace? Well, so what what happens is is and really this is true for for cities as well is they evolve over time, right? And and so they're they're making statements of their time and what the university in this case what the university wants to try to communicate. And so the fact that that evolves over time, I would say, is a very healthy indication of a university that's evolving with the community it's serving. So, you know, I, I, I agree. I think President's Circle is, is, is one of our iconic uh, places on campus. And if you stop and think about what that's really talking about is that's facing the community of Salt Lake in the valley. And it's this shape of an embrace that the two really need to coexist uh, and integrate with one another. And that's a very powerful message that resonates to this day. And then uh, some of the other buildings that you're you're talking about, um, and I would extend it to some of the newer buildings. Let, let's say Lasange. Sure. You know, uh, Lasange a really interesting project in that it's this mix of student housing and maker space and innovation space. And and what's interesting about that is that was a willingness of this university to say, look, we need to mix things up. We need to be willing to innovate and think about what combinations could really create a very interesting student life. And, and so that spirit of innovation, I think, is really what captures the university today. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, build, the buildings definitely reflect the eras. I love that. You know, they also communicate identity, place, values. I think of a building like Orson Spencer Hall that's no longer on campus being replaced by Gardner Commons. I'm intrigued, though, that the, the buildings that are iconic, that sticks together, you know, we make a choice to preserve President's Circle and other buildings, um, you know, come down over time. Uh, uh, th thoughts on... Just, just from an architectural perspective, like, you know, these choices we make about what we, what we invest in and what we then choose to say, hey, that building's past its prime. Sure. Well, uh, there's all sorts that go into that, obviously. So I, I think in terms of um, President's Circle, there, there's for that 19th century architecture about higher ed, ed so not only President's Circle, but if you look elsewhere across the, the country, there was just a very strong sense of what the educational mission was and how that would reflect itself in classrooms. Um, and if you go into those buildings, you'll actually see they, they typically have like very high ceilings. They're typically open floor plans. Columns are widespread out. And what you have are just basic principles there that allow for flexibility over time. And I think one of the best buildings on campus to reflect that is actually what's now the Crocker Science Center. So we're talking about a building that served as a library. It served as the Natural History Museum of Utah. Now it's this wonderful Crocker Science Center. And that's because it just had really good design principles uh, to it. 
And and I think that that's what really allows buildings to stay. And, and there's a phrase in, in architecture that's called about how buildings learn. How can buildings learn to do something else over time? So, um, and that's what you're really looking for, I think, when you're making these kind of investments are buildings that have wonderful image to them. They, they say something about the university, but also are also adaptable to, to use. So I think some of the other buildings that we have in that regard, I would actually put my architecture building <laughs> yeah. in that regard. Um, a lot of people don't uh, don't necessarily like brutalist architecture. And I think we have buildings on campus that perhaps are not the strongest example of brutalist architecture. But I would say the architecture building is in that it just has incredibly strong bones. It's very wide open in terms of its space. And that allows for the flexibility of the systems that have emerged over the 50 years it's existed. I mean, who would have thought of about the wireless technology that we would need to embed? And yet this building is easy to embrace it because of the openness with which it was designed. And then it has this wonderful image as you're making this walk up to the Utah Museum of Fine Arts. So you know, I think each building has, has a unique characteristic. But I think those are some of the characteristics of why something lasts a long time. All right. So I'm not an architecture scholar, but you brought up brutalist architecture. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the C- CSBS Tower. I'm not actually sure what we call that. It's probably our, w- whether we like it, it's probably our most iconic, one of our most iconic buildings. And for those of you who have not been on campus, it's a, gosh, what is it, 10, 13 story right. kind of concrete tower. Right. Right. Yes. Um, and it's in, in pretty much in the center of campus. And in that way, it serves as a landmark. You right. know, it, it certainly does. But I think that's kind of the flip side of, of what I was just talking about. So the CSBS Tower, you know, again, for, for 50 years, it's, it's, it's served us well, but it was a very tight fit kind of design. Mm-hmm. And so as, as we begin to take a look at what, what might be the lifespan of that building, I can tell you some of the things we wrestle with is that um, because it was so tightly fit, it's, it's hard to retrofit. Right. It, it, it kind of is what it is. Um, and it's just going to be very expensive to try and address. And so that's a building that is not learning. That's a building that was designed to do a very specific function at a very specific time, and it just is not adaptable to change. I think I know the answer, but do you have a favorite building on campus? <laughs> um, well, I'm actually going to surprise you, I think. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I, I would say the Natural History Museum of Utah is actually my favorite. Um, I think that building, it's tied to the landscape. Uh, it's tied to the place in terms of its material selection. It's, it's statement about bringing people together and it's wonderful canyon that it has uh, as you enter that, the way it serves the research function as well as the educational function. It's just, uh, it's a tremendous building. And then on top of it, uh, the efforts that's made to be sustainable over time uh, is really quite tremendous. And the fact that they have ambitions to make it uh, even more so in that regard that that is a landmark building. Yeah. We've never talked about this, but I, I, a question for you: What is the university's relationship with the surrounding community? So, when, from an architectural perspective, so you think of Salt Lake City, you think of the surrounding neighborhood like Yellow Crest and Federal Heights. I know for some of our listeners, they're going to say, you know, the University of Utah is typically not a great neighbor. You know, we're big; we got seventy thousand people who come every day. We're driving through their neighborhoods. But in other ways, we are kind of a city inside of a city. And I'm curious from, a, from your perspective as we think about this, what, 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 what should that relationship be to the surrounding community? Sure. So I think part of that rests in the fact that the identity of the university is changing. So I think mm-hmm. it's fair to say for a number of decades, it, it's been a commuter campus. 
And clearly where we're headed now is that we really want it to be much more of a residential campus. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. But with that, I think if you just begin to take a look at the the numbers, you put your finger on it. It's a city within a city. So if we take a look at a, a university that right now, you know, is about 35,000 students and 20,000 employees, if they're all here, right, it, it's a top 20 city in Utah right. that is on this on this property. And I think we sometimes lose lose track of that. And so how we integrate with the community around us, uh, it, it goes beyond just... Uh, integrating buildings. It has to do with infrastructure, movement patterns. I mean, all sorts of things because we really are a, a, a city that's adjacent to to our neighboring communities. But the idea will be how do we get the, the neighboring communities to realize that the, the, the idea of the university is changing, um, that it will begin to have more people, and how can we embrace them in that idea? That there's actually advancements that happen in communities as they, as they grow, and what are the enrichment opportunities that the university presents? I mean, how unique to be so close in those neighborhoods to the cultural advantages, the athletic activities, I mean, there are reasons people want to live in those those neighborhoods, and my gut tells me the university is probably a big reason why. So, kind of along those lines, you mentioned this. You know, uh, President Randall has a vision to to grow our campus to forty thousand students. A lot more uh, first years living on campus. Uh, we're looking at almost a billion dollars in annual research funding, which is you know significant research space. So. You know, in your new role, you'll be working with our, you know, facilities teams, um, but the space implications. I mean, I've heard, I've heard our chief real estate officer talk about we need to stop. I think he describes it as suburban growth and think more urban. We can't think out anymore. We got to start thinking up. But what's what's you know what are the implications for your new job as we look at all this growth? Sure, absolutely. Well, it's a, it's one of the reasons I took the position. It's a very exciting proposition uh, that's being placed here. It's rethinking. Um, what the university ought to be in this 21st century. And I think that notion that, uh, that, that you were saying that the, the chief real estate officer was, was saying, well, part of that is because we're landlocked. But a whole other part of that is that if we start thinking about a city, thinking of the university as a city, well, it's not just about providing 5,000 new student housing over the next few years, right, which is the desire. But now all of a sudden, that means... What are the other aspects of community life that need to be embedded here? So it's not just they're here not just for an educational mission. They're here for social life. They are here for what it takes to to make it through your life. So grocery stores, pharmacy, all those kind of support functions really begin to need to be part of that enlivening the community to become a 24-7 city. And yes, some of our students are up at three in the morning. So, um, so we need to. Some begin- of our researchers are as well. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, so we need to begin to design for that for that vitality uh, that we really want, and to begin to think about how that begins to change what is really wonderful university setting. Keep its characteristic. Many people don't know it's actually a state arboretum. How do we keep its characteristic of that, but also integrate ideas of city life? I think is exactly the challenge that faces us. Yeah. I spent much of my career working at University Hospital, and it's such a magical place to me because it's one of those 24-7 places, like the airport. You, you know, there's always something going on. The mm-hmm. Starbucks is always open. And when I came to main campus, you know, you've got that iconic, you know, president's circle. It's it's a, it's a very geographically diverse campus, I mean, in terms of the space that we need. Oh, absolutely it is. And, and I think that's where... 
I think an advantage we have, you talked about President Circle and, and the fact that it has developed in different areas. So for instance, over the last decade, we've really been filling in what used to be a golf course, right? And, and so forth. The advantage of that is we actually have the beginning of the ideas of neighborhoods. And it's neighborhoods that really create a sense of community. Um, so yes, somebody may, may be part of uh, Salt Lake City, but I bet they also consider themselves part of Federal Heights or part of the ballpark neighborhood and that it has certain characteristics. And that's the advantage that, that I think we, we really have here at the University of Utah. Emphasize that idea of neighborhoods. What are they about? Is this, a, is this an area about innovation? Is this an area about the arts? Is this an area about um, you know, a, a STEM and so forth. I, I think we have great opportunities to really create unique, iconic neighborhoods uh, wow. as we develop. I love the idea. I think of the athletics corridor and the fine arts corridor and kind of the healthcare corridor. Let's do a little bit of work here. So new position on campus. A lot of our listeners, obviously, are campus employees. What's your message when they get that phone call email from you? What should they know about this role that you're coming to talk to them about? Well, I, I would go back that really what the, the challenge of this position is, is to, to innovate where we want to go in terms of the, the built environment and recognizing that our physical setting has a great deal of impact, whether it's our teaching mission, our research mission, or community impact. Um, and so when I'm reaching out, there's probably an opportunity on the table uh, in terms of what is possible um, and that my role is, as I said, that of a concierge or navigator, and I want to help them along in terms of achieving the dreams and aspirations that the various deans and the university has uh, to really create creating what is a leading-edge 21st century campus. All right, Keith, last question. Let me take you back to your time as dean. And I'm going to play a clip from 2019, the 2019 commencement. The first voice you'll hear is, is President, former President Ruth Watkins. I'll play that, and then I'll kind of ask you the background of this. So here we go. I would like to invite my colleagues, the academic deans, to present the candidates from their respective colleges. Dean Diaz-Moore. And now, ladies and gentlemen, get ready to put your hands together for Utah's newest design thinkers, environmental caretakers, and uh, placemakers, the candidates from the College of Architecture and Planning. Will you please rise and be recognized? And the crowd went crazy. So t we, we, you were asked, I, I think you're the first dean who did that. Tell me about the, the evolution of that, that graduation and the role as, of deans. Oh, absolutely. Well, first, I mean, commencement's just one of the glorious days, right? And, and uh, students have accomplished so much, and what they want to do is celebrate. And I certainly wanted to, to embrace that. But the, where it came from was uh, the first year was uh, Ruth asked the, the deans to, to announce the candidates. And it didn't even dawn on me, the fact that I was a College of Architecture and Planning, but it starts with an A, that I would go first. So, so I'm sitting there and I'm realizing I'm going first. And I also have our now president, Taylor Randall, who's dean of the School of Business, uh, next to me. And I realize he's going to go next. And so I'm thinking my tiny college versus his immense school, um, uh, how am I going to get the crowd into this? And so it was interesting because that year they said they gave us a very strict script. And, and so I was th thinking, well, they told us what we had to say, but they didn't tell us how to say it. 
And so that's where that came from. I was like, uh, let me try and generate some enthusiasm here. And then it just took off from there. And to my credit of my dean colleagues, they, they ran with it. They developed very personalized messages, and it's just become somewhat of a tradition. Yeah, it is one of my favorite things. It, 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 like you said, it, it helps celebrate and takes it, it brings some fun to uh, what otherwise can sometimes be a very long, long ceremony. That's right. Uh, Keith, thank you again. Thanks for being our guest on You Rising. Uh, listeners, that's it for today's episode. Our executive producer is Brooke Adams, and our technical producer is Robert Nelson. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Chris Nelson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.